0: the researchers in pharmacoepidemiolo- pharmacoepidemiology,
1: epidemiology is that it Pharmacoepid- Pharmacoepidemiology.
0: epidemiology oh pharmacoepidemiology, epidemiology okay so the the researchers in pharmacoepidemiology...
1: epidemiology <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to get this right and nobody will be any the wiser <laughs> are you okay with all of the fires going on in california right now
0: oh yeah well, they're finished now. They've fully contained them, I believe. Mm. They went on for weeks, though. It was, funny enough, it was because we recorded like three weeks ago now, uh, which was just as they started, I think, or maybe they have been going on for a, a few days already. But it was, it was around the time that the smoke was starting to get really bad. Mm. And, you know, it's serious when suddenly loads of americans in california are wearing face masks and it looks like japan (laughs) right right although the face masks here have you seen the face masks like because i guess in japan everyone wears face masks all the time and they they tend to be quite sort of cheap simple things Mm. but the ones that everyone was wearing here are like full-on i mean halfway towards being a gas mask they, they were huge and they had like this this whole unit in them to filter out the smoke and stuff i guess mm.
1: well the yeah. that's um the the whole issue of uh japanese face masks we should talk about that but let's, let's just cover the uh your situation first before we get on that
0: okay well yeah i mean my situation was that uh i didn't have any face masks and uh it was smoking horrible and so i just avoided going outside for like two or three mm. weeks i mean it went on for a very long time and suddenly everyone is is very interested in the aqi which as i'm sure you're aware is the air quality index. Of course, I wasn't aware. None of us, I don't think, were aware of it until suddenly there's smoke everywhere. Right. And uh, and and we're checking it every day, and now we're all experts on what a good air quality index score
1: is. Wow. So you, when you say you're inside for for several weeks, you weren't going to work?
0: No, no, I did go to work. I did. I just okay. i
1: i avoided. You know, I I like
0: to go for walks outside and things, but it was not a pleasant thing to do when all the smoke. Wow. Was out. And it really stayed in. the... I mean, we're quite far. You know, these fires were. Fairly far north of where we are, like mm. like a good three or four hours drive north of where we were but the the air quality down here
1: was was really bad um, so why I th- what, it seems unusual to me that well firstly what's what's the kind of average temperature that you've got going every day over there right now
0: uh it's well so that's the other thing. It fell very sharply just around the time that all this was happening, and I think that all the smoke in the air was was like blocking out the sun or something. Right. Uh, but it, I think it actually brought about a kind of climactic change. I mean, obviously, it was going to get colder anyway, right, because it's winter. Mm. But uh, I feel like it was a very sudden sort of, okay, this is the on switch now for for bringing about winter maybe slightly earlier than planned.
1: I'm a bit mystified why, uh, why you could have such... Kind of rampant forest fires just at the end of autumn and the start of winter.
0: Well, because everything is extremely dry and we haven't had any rain for months. Right. Um, it's not like where you are, probably, where it rains uh, a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I mean, it's, it's just very surreal because, uh, I mean, other than, I mean, you could, exp- if you were in the southern hemisphere, okay, perhaps, but right here, right now, it is about minus 11. Mm hmm. Celsius, which is like 12 Fahrenheit, which I just looked up on my handy unit converter. That is quite a lot colder than it is here.
0: I mean, its I'm saying it's cold, but it's like, you know, it's 20 and I'm whining.
1: <laughs> right. I say, okay, yeah, that's because, I don't know, my experience with forest fires comes from Australia mm-hmm. and uh, where I'm from, it uh, will get up to 45 in the summer mm-hmm. at a, an extreme... Mm-hmm. case which is 113 Fahrenheit mm-hmm. and um, because of all the eucalyptus around the place mm-hmm. it's and it's also being so dry and so hot mm. you know it doesn't take much to sort of spark off uh, a forest fire and then of course it, it really spreads rapidly because of the oily leaves right. the eucalyptus right, right, oil right. in the leaves um, but that then because of the heat you know obviously uh, it, it becomes very very difficult to uh, contain it but If over there it's about twenty, then is it? So I uh,
0: I would say yeah, it's probably about probably about eighteen twenty. I guess maybe it's fallen a bit lower this week, so maybe dropped down to about fifteen or something like that. Mm. Okay, yeah, but it's not the heat. I mean, it's it's the dryness really, and uh, which is the same problem. The actual I'm not sure if they got to the bottom of the cause of the fire. Uh, Although at one point, Mm. PG and E, which is the main gas and electricity company around here Uh, at one point they almost seemed to be not quite admitting it but almost saying like well it's possible that we did have a problem with one of our electricity lines around that time around that neck of the woods Mm. Uh, so there might have been a spark off one of their lines that started it but i'm not sure if that was ever sort of proved to be true Um, Mm. but you know it's just because it you know it just takes one spark from from anything right from a a problem with one of the electricity lines or i mean there's a story going around today which is the dumbest thing that i've seen Mm. in a while which is um another wildfire that happened in somewhere like arizona or somewhere like that i think uh Mm. where somebody had done one of these gender reveal have you seen these things? They're really popular in in America. It's kind of a peculiar no. concept. They have these is, what are called Is that like fl- flashing? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's revealing the gender of a newborn baby, not of <laughs> oh, not okay. your oh, own of yourself. <laughs> <I say. laughs> so, <okay. laughs> it's it seems to be popular that parents uh you know like a traditional thing where you say it's a boy or it's a girl and you have cards that are blue or pink or whatever and hmm weirdly, you might think that in this day and age that there's a a bit of a movement away from this sort of notion of very strongly identifying with one particular gender at birth and and with saying that blue is male and pink is female and all this. Mm. But maybe as a reaction to that, maybe not, I'm not sure. There seems to be this popular thing. I've only seen it in America. I don't know if it's spread beyond that, where people will have these big parties where they do some big sort of thing to show, to reveal to all their friends the gender of their new baby. So they'll have like, you know, like a balloon that pops and all confetti comes out and then a sign drops down saying it's a boy or whatever. Right. Oh, wow. Do some sort of something like that. And they try, they're all trying to be creative. And so this one couple, I guess, decided to set up this installation in the middle of a field, in one of the places beginning with an A—Arizona or Alabama or one of those—and then they they had this sort of contraption that they blew up, and I think the idea was that it would explode, and then I don't really know what the idea was. Presumably, the gender would be revealed, but after the explosion, somehow, hmm. what actually happened was a wildfire. <laughs> <laughs> that took weeks, killed loads of people. So, you know, this is quite a serious problem. I mean, it, it, the origin of this thing is kind of ridiculous and you want to laugh at it, but it was serious. And it caused like $8 million right. worth of damage. And the, the father-to-be has been fined $8 million and sent to jail for five years. So Really? That's, oh, that's horrible. I mean, it's horrible. And obviously, he was just excited about the birth of his child so it's a bit of a shame he's going to be missing the first five years of that but yeah it does seem like like an outrageously dumb thing to do is set off an explosion in the middle of a very dry field Hmm. in in arizona or wherever it is wow (laughs) wow so yes anyway that took a dark turn but (laughs) wildfires
1: (laughs) 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 Yeah, so it's it's a similar thing in in Australia as well. In um, doesn't take much at all to start a fire when it's that yeah. hot and it's that dry. Yeah. Uh, it can just be you know somebody's cigarette butt thrown out of a window, or it could just be like a backfire from a car mm. uh, is enough to to set things alight. So um, uh, yeah, but it, it to me anyway, sort of like uh, you need to have that uh, precedent of it being that hot before the danger really reaches that high, and I guess over here, you know, uh, when it's been sub-zero for the last few weeks, mm. watching, you know, news stories of, of Californian wildfires, it's kind of, wait a moment, what, what hemisphere are they in? American. Uh, right. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> definitely warmer
0: than where you are, but it's more it's more to do with the dryness because we've, right you know, and especially up there, I think there's been a drought for quite a while now. Right, right. Funny enough, I actually was up there last week, mm-hmm. uh, not up where the fires are, but I took a trip up over the Thanksgiving break, to the Napa Valley area Hmm. uh, and we were just there for a couple of days obviously but it was nice there was no. by that point there was still the first day was still very smoky but by the second day the rain fell and the moment the rain fell the air was clear again and it's amazing after three weeks of this awful awful air quality that you're breathing in smoke the whole time just suddenly to have the air be clear again, and you suddenly realize, oh, this is what it felt like to breathe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we we should definitely touch on the, um, the famous Japanese face mask thing, mm. because there may be people who actually even don't know about it, but even those who have seen, uh, you know, pictures or have, uh, you know, YouTube videos or whatever of this kind of famous characteristic of modern Japanese society, may be a little bit puzzled about what what it's all about and how prevalent it is and what it means and all of that. So why don't we first introduce the the phenomenon as if you'd never seen it before? So would you like to uh, do the honours? Well...
0: It's really just that a lot of Japanese people wear face masks. <laughs> you know the face masks that that nurses and doctors wear, not the. Yeah. If people in California are listening, who've seen all these super sort of Half-Life like contraptions on their face, not like that, much much more thinner and and just like what a surgeon would wear or something like that.
1: Yeah. So they are they're not actually face masks. They're actually surgical masks, right. aren't they? Yeah. And so. That they only really cover your your nose and your mouth, right? Uh, but it's not really, and it's kind of a thin, yeah, thin layer of fabric,
0: not not like a yeah. full on sort of
1: filter. Filter, yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, in in classic form, of course, the television advertisements all show uh, these wonderful graphics of the air sort of passing in and passing out <laughs> through these these basically thin. Bits of tissue paper right. showing how much it, it filters—you know, ninety-five percent of bad stuff. Right, <laughs> that the red stuff, the red stuff coming up from the outside, and then come, you know, passes through the the mask, and then on the out, coming through the out, other side is is blue, nice blue fresh air.
0: Well, is that what you're breathing out, blue fresh air?
1: No, you. That, uh, what yeah. sense
0: does that make?
1: <laughs> you know, there's like these. Uh, um, Japan has got some really funny uh, visualizations of medical commodities. Mm. Uh, the, the one that I always never seem to forget is uh, the laxative pill, <laughs> uh, and and the uh, the visualization in the television com- commercial is uh, a slippery dip with these three dimensional music notes sliding down. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Uh, which is which is which is your blockage being. Uh, effectively cleared by this laxative medicine. Anyway, so the the face mask thing is, uh, if you've never seen it before, it's pretty surreal. So basically the idea is it's a form of courtesy to the people around you that if you are sick, then it's less of a filter to prevent you from getting sick from other people. And it's more a filter to protect other people from getting sick from you right well i i I mean I think it is both well i've never, se- I've never seen people wear them when they're not sick though
0: uh well, my wife does
1: okay <laughs> quite quite often
0: like she'll wear it and i th- I think it's reasonably common she'll wear it whenever she goes on like a plane or something like that, which is classic, like you know planes filled with germs right you've got all the tons of people packed in like sardines coming from all sorts of countries, so she'll wear it before she goes to sleep on a plane and she'll wear it when i'm sick Uh. (laughs) (laughs) so she so it is a thing to wear to prevent getting sick but it is definitely definitely when you are sick it is a courtesy courtesy to wear it that is true you would definitely wear it when you are sick you might wear it to avoid getting sick but you would definitely wear it when you are sick to avoid other people yeah
1: so the idea of course is that the kind of odd thing about it is that it does have some reflection of the, the Japanese, I wouldn't call it an obsession, but I guess it's the cultural fascination with the idea of sickness prevention, mm. sort of preemptive sickness prevention. Mm. Because uh, one thing that we find is that um, Japanese people are very, very concerned with keeping themselves well mm-hmm. and taking preventative me- measures to prevent themselves from getting sick. Whereas, well, let's use big, massive, fat air quotes here and say Westerners mm-hmm. are often more likely to, you know, visit a doctor after you get sick. Or, and it doesn't get better after a few days you go to a doctor. right? You, that, that's the point where you seek medicine and medical kind of assistance. Whereas in Japan, it's often the case that, you know, people will want to be taking medicine or will want to be doing something. To give them this peace of mind that I'm doing something to prevent myself from getting sick.
0: Right. It's the same. We, what did we say a few weeks ago? Uh, there was the the notion of I have to try so that I can say I've tried or something like that.
1: Right. Yeah. Something like, that was uh, several episodes yeah, ago. I think yeah. we talked something about that. Yeah. And that's the the the, the sad kind of humorous thing is that uh, these face masks as a means of preventing you from getting sick,
2: mm-hmm.
1: they scientifically have been proven to do absolutely nothing. <laughs> like there is absolutely no effect. If somebody has a cold in your office and you wear a white face mask, mm-hmm. there's absolutely no effect. There's no preventative benefit of doing that. Right. You will get sick from that person, whether or not you want to or not, if you are in the the right sort of circumstances. For example, you're standing in front of them as they cough at you. Right. Well, also, I mean, the colds in
0: particular are passed on much more by physical touching, by, you know, picking up a pen that somebody who had a cold just wrote with. Exactly. Than
1: by the air anyway. Yeah. So that's, that's the kind of funny thing that you see these television advertisements that will make you think that wearing one of these white face masks will filter out the air around you so that you're breathing in the nice fresh blue air and then you won't get sick from all the people around you. But actually, the reality is that it does absolutely nothing. It's more of a placebo effect, I suppose. Mm. Uh, On the other hand, if you are sick yourself, wearing the mask does have some kind of minor benefit in that if you're coughing, Mm -hmm. then the vapor that's coming out of your uh, mouth, there's going to be less of it getting onto surfaces around the place that other people could... Accidentally touch and then go and rub their eye, right,
2: right, right, exactly, <laughs> which
1: would make them sick. Yeah. But the 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 funny thing is, is that uh, yeah, just the the idea that oh, you know, wearing a mask is going to prevent help me from, you know, getting sick from all these sick people around me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When you understand that actually, scientifically, it has no benefit whatsoever, and you see lots and lots of people wearing masks, it's it's a little bit comical actually. You you, you kind of have to laugh,
0: right? Although, as you said, they're mostly wearing them for the sake of other people rather than to avoid their own sickness. Yeah,
1: there was one um situation where I could see that like it was a very very stark example of this aspect of the Japanese anxiety towards sickness and mm-hmm. that was during the SARS virus crisis. Oh do you yeah. That? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember getting on the train going home and every single person had a white mask on. <laughs> like literally every person except for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> had a white mask on. And it was great. It's like, thanks everybody. Right. It's very courtesy of you. <laughs> it's all good. I'm gonna be fine. <laughs> but, you know, it was just an example that you know of course nobody wanted to sort of catch it. So everybody was wearing these white masks and right. I was just you know, the, those lines were playing through in my head that, you know, scientifically proven not to have any benefit whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> it is funny. It's, I mean was, there is there's people, you know,
0: and foreigners in Japan especially always Talk about that—the fact that it's, you know, unscientific. Uh, but then, at the same time, Japan famously has like the longest lifespan on average in the world. Clearly, the white
1: masks are the, think, the the white right? masks are
0: <laughs> the white masks have everything to do with it. No, but I think I think their their consciousness of
1: their own health, of
0: course. Helps with that, right? I mean, they, mm. you know, maybe some of the things they do are more effective than others, mm. but in general, I think if you asked a doctor here, if you could wave a magic wand and make everyone suddenly take greater preventative care measures, they would all say, "Oh, yes, please, I'll have that wand." Yeah, uh, you know, but everyone is trying to push preventative health measures all the time over here as well. Yeah,
1: my um, this is uh, getting into actually the uh, topic, the academic field that my father is in and it's called pharmacoepidemiology Mm. that's one word Mm -hmm. pharmacoepidemiology very good you might you might recognize a few chunks out of that word pharma obviously not f-a-r-m-a yeah of course but pharma as in (laughs) p-h-r-a-p-h-a-r-m-a you're doing very well i can do english (laughs) yes um pharma of course being pharmacy medicine yeah and epidemiology, you might uh, recognize epi from like epidemic. Uh, yeah. And uh, pharmacoepidemiology is the study of medicine over large populations of people. Mm. And it folds into it um, other aspects of sociology and statistics and demographics, and of course, pharmacy, mm. drug research, uh, doctor communication, cultural aspects as well. It, it's all kind of folded into this one. Very, very fascinating field, mm. and um, yeah, Japan is amongst the the uh, noted pharmacoepidemiologists around the world. Japan is fairly uh, famously one of the most paranoid and highest consuming population of medicines. Mm.
0: But doesn't surprise me all that much. Yeah.
1: <laughs> By far, Japanese people are the most paranoid about get almost to a hypochondriac level. Right, right. Uh, and they are also – they consume far more medicine mm-hmm. than anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, again, this comes back to this cultural aspect. And, and that's, I guess, the reason why pharmacoepidemiology is very interesting because ethically, mm-hmm. you know, there is an issue. There is a discussion there about whether or not it is good to be consuming so much medicine, even when you don't need it, right?
0: Well, especially with antibiotics, right? That's actually really problematic if, if they're taking anti- antibiotics. But I don't know. I don't know if that's the medicine that they're taking,
1: right? Um, the sociological aspect, of course. You know, there are the ethics there, but then mm-hmm. there's also the cultural aspect, which has to be considered when pharmacoepidemiologists are talking about this kind of issue. Mm-hmm. And that is that you know, from a cultural point of view, this is just the norm in Japan. That you know, right if there's a way to kind of prevent yourself from getting sick, then you're going to take those measures. Right.
0: And it's a difficult thing to criticize in a way, because, for example, my wife, who is Japanese and absolutely fulfills all these stereotypes, mm. and is also a qualified nurse, right? Mm. Qual- qualified in in Japan with all its its own sort of biases. But she gets sick a lot less than I do for various reasons. Principal amongst them probably being that she takes more care of herself than I do. Hmm. And so when I get sick, I get very little sympathy. (laughs) I do. I, I'm, like, afraid to say I've got a cold because I'll get in trouble. Because <laughs> it'll be like, well, you should have done this and this and this. So, obviously, you're going to get sick. I can't believe you get sick so often. This is outrageous. Yeah. And it's like a, a moral failing to get sick, which is – so then you can't – so then it's very difficult to come back and say, I think you should be a little less – I'm not talking on a personal level here, but on, like, a sociological level. Right. To criticise a group of people and say – you ought to be a little less hypochondriac. right? And they can very easily come back to you and say, yeah, but you're sick all the time. Yeah,
1: this is a this is a really, really uh, interesting discussion point because firstly, every individual person has a different immune system. Mm. So your body weight, your body size, your gender, your your genetic makeup mm-hmm. is going to create for you a very, very different immune system than from your wife. So obviously... These two systems cannot be compared on the same level right so just because your wife doesn't get sick and you do doesn't mean that you are weaker or that she is stronger because she takes more medicine or wears white masks or whatever mm-hmm. you know so it's impossible to compare on the same level because uh, my wife is the same my wife very rarely gets sick
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: but she does nothing like she doesn't do any she doesn't wear masks she doesn't take vitamins or medicines or anything mm-hmm. Uh, but she just generally doesn 't get sick very much, and I guess she just genetically has a very strong immune system compared to the the me and my son and my daughter right However, the point I think we may have talked about this once before, but in Japan, in the workplace,
2: mm. when
1: you get sick it 's your fault, and it 's not sort of some unavoidable kind of act of nature that you have no control over. Mm. You got sick, and it 's your fault. And you need to apologize for being sick. Mm. And I remember actually uh, way back at the com- a company that I worked at a long time ago where I was doing human resources work. We had um, – uh, it was early days for the department and we employed a whole bunch of foreign people. Mm. And we had the uh, the contract policies for these foreign employees was taken from another division in another part of the country mm. – and we basically – because we kind of basically started the department, we being myself and my Japanese boss, mm-hmm. we just sort of started the department. We took these policies and we thought, okay, we'll just go with these for the moment and we'll kind of tweak it as we go along. Right. And in there, these were contracts for employing people freelance on a set schedule. Mm. And basically, you were paid depending on how much that you worked. Right. And there was this major controversy that we had to uh, solve, which was in the policies that were taken from this other Japanese department. If you were sick, then you didn't get paid for that day because you were sick. If you didn't come
0: in to work because you were sick.
1: That's right. Right, You didn't get paid right. because you were sick. Right. And that's just, that was just it. It's like a flat out policy. Mm. You know, you're sick, no money and one of the, the first my first challenges in doing this kind of human resources work was dealing with a number of people who stepped up to say that's totally unfair mm. because it's not our fault that we got sick mm. whereas in this case you are pen- penalizing us for being sick right. by taking our money right. away
0: not to mention encouraging them to come in sick and spread their disease mm. to everyone else exactly
1: right and so yeah that was a that was a really interesting kind of cultural Sort of challenge because from my boss's point of view, it was like, well, you know, they're sick. They could have done things to prevent themselves from getting sick, but they didn't, mm. and they got sick. So that's their responsibility to keep themselves healthy. Mm. And this is an interesting idea that that you have a responsibility to keep yourself healthy, and if you don't, you have failed in your responsibility. Right.
0: I, I mean, even in like outside of these freelance contracts, but you know, a normal full-time employment contract, sick days tend to come out of your yearly leave. It's not like my experience in both the UK and America where you have vacation, X number of days of vacation per year and X number of sick days per year. Hmm. Like your sick days come out of your vacation and it's unwise to use up all of your vacation because you may need to hold some of those vacation days in stock to use for sick days. Right,
1: right. I think that the um there are obviously many many situations where a slightly more paranoid attitude towards your health mm. and uh sort of a willingness for immediate action and preemptive measures is obviously hugely beneficial and obviously the the obvious one there is cancer. Mm. You know, uh cancer if you can catch it very very early mm. then um there's uh you know a much higher chance of a successful uh, successful recovery mm. as opposed to the the you know the opposite situation where you only go to the doctor or the hospital when you think oh hold on this isn't right mm. and then, then it could be too late right um and that you know that's a situation where uh, in japan they um you know maybe in a better position there because they're likely to go earlier or they pick it up at their sort of regular uh routine health checks right
0: that's on a personal level and then on a society-wide level, it's also advantageous if a greater proportion of the people who have some sort of contagious disease fix it quickly and stop Mm. passing it on to other people. You know, that allows you to contain disease much quicker. Right, right.
1: Yeah, so the question of why it is that Japanese people live so long, I think it's definitely a, it's the, it's a combination of many, many different factors Mm. and sort of this paranoid attitude towards sickness Mm. is one of them, I guess. Um, I think, obviously, the diet mm-hmm. has a lot to do with it. Yeah. A lot of fish, not very much meat. Mm-hmm. Japanese people in general uh, don't consume that much meat in their diet compared to um, other cultures. Mm-hmm. I guess generally a fairly active lifestyle. You know, in that if you just think of the your average office worker mm-hmm. having to walk to the train station, climb three flights of stairs, stand up on a train for 60 minutes... <laughs> you know, you climb mm-hmm. down three flights of stairs. Get upstairs. to work, do <laughs> Rajyo Tyson with everyone else. <laughs> Rajyo Taiso,
0: you mean? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> taiso, yeah. <clears throat> Sorry,
1: Rajyo Taiso. Yeah, that's the um, uh, the NHK radio broadcast exercise program that I think came. It must be in like the 50s or the 60s that came about. Mm-hmm. I actually did that every morning for two years, you know.
0: Right, I mean, it's still fairly common in sort of quite traditional Japanese companies for everyone to do that at the beginning of their working day
1: yeah it, it does i mean obviously exercising before you sit down for the rest of the day you know mm. obviously that's that's a great idea mm. those exercises like any exercises really if you really if you really put in a lot of effort they're actually quite tiring mm. but anyway the you know the japanese long life is uh, uh is uh, definitely a combination of many 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 factors Oh, that's right. I, w- I was going to add one thing onto the, um, the issue of Japanese medicine and pharmacoepidemiology. Oh, yeah. That is that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, they need to take in the cultural uh, impl- implications and the cultural aspect into, into their research and to their mm-hmm. uh, analysis of um, medicines over populations. Mm. And medicine systems, medical systems that are specific to countries mm-hmm. are also taken extremely seriously you have Western medicine, mm-hmm. but then in the case of Japan, you've got you know the Chinese medicine, which is like Kampo yaku. Mm-hmm. Kampo yaku is basically Kampo, uh, means basically uh, Chinese method, and it's kind of like a they're usually small packets of powder made of various kinds of herbs, and uh, right. kind of like an offshoot of aromatherapy, I suppose. But it's not aroma. It's not not aroma, but it's
0: it's yeah, it's
1: herbal remedies
0: essentially. And there will be you will be prescribed them by doctors sometimes. Yeah. Like it's not like a separate thing where you choose to go to a medical, Western medicine doctor, or you choose to go to an alternative medicine doctor. Like mainstream doctors will will prescribe Campo, especially for things like colds and stuff. Yeah,
1: and often one very common use of it is that you'll get you'll go to the doctor because you're sick and you'll get five different pills mm. and including antibiotics <laughs> and then there'll be, there'll be a, a packet of uh, like a sachet of Kampor mm-hmm. and that powder is usually one of the common things that I've seen a few times is this particular medicine out of your five different pills is very, very harsh on your stomach. So right. this powder will soften that.
0: Right. Yeah, that's common. You get like two, med- like one medicine to fix the thing and the other medicine to counteract the
1: side effects of the first medicine. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Japan, not only Japan, of course, but um, India is another country where they have several, uh, I think three or four different native uh, medical systems and medicine practices. That's true. Uh, that all all have different kinds of approaches and philosophies and they're all taken very, very seriously not so much seriously from a Western science point of view, um, but more seriously from the point of view that the people in this country truly believe that this medicine will make them better, regardless of if it actually does or not. The fact that they truly believe it is highly significant. Uh, And so that's the reason why um, those native medicines are also taken very very seriously.
0: Are you talking about taken seriously, for example, by the Japanese, or are you talking about from... A pharmacoepidemiological perspective.
1: Yeah, the latter. That's correct. So the technic...
0: Right, right. Okay. So the researchers in pharmacoepidemiology take seriously the the effects, both sociologically and medically, of of these various uh, traditional uh, styles of medicine. That's what you're saying.
1: Yeah. 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 Less take seriously the medical effect of them, but more take mm-hmm. seriously the cultural, sociological, and psychological effect of uh, these native medicines. Mm-hmm. Because you would think that you know, as Western med, Western as practitioners of Western medicine, you know, you may think that um, they may be tempted to not take seriously. Oh, that's just you know, some powder from a ground-up ginger root or something. That's not going to do anything for you, except make you feel, you know, a little less like throwing up or something like that. Mm. But no, the, the the reality is is that you know those are. You know, basically it is the power of the human mind and really is the placebo effect in many cases that the patient truly believes that this will help. And because of that, it often does.
0: Right. That's true. But I mean, it's also true that, that like some of these things are not without their merit, right? Like ginger and turmeric are both quite good for you and do help prevent you from wanting to throw up, which is a valuable trait. <laughs> right, right, so, right. Yeah.
1: Yes. So... um Larp. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even gonna try. I'm not even gonna try to to craft some uh, classic Station Thirteen segue. Let's just get straight to it. Well, you can probably segue into
0: Larp from the other thing, which is that I'm taking another approach to trying to get a bilingual D and D group together.
1: Okay. Yep. So, as a recap, there previously you had attempted to do this with it was over Skype, and you had. Two bilingual players, mm-hmm. yourself and uh, Tema, mm-hmm. who were responsible for taking turns in translating from one language to the other, for the two players who were monolingual, right? Correct. Right. And there was one more player who was sort of a bit of both. and it was kind of kind of awkward because you because of the having to change languages, you lost much of the sort of dialogue momentum, right. And also just a whole lot to keep in your mind as, you, as you're as you working through it.
0: It was partly just that it was the first time, but there were a lot of things coming together to make it awkward. Right. Uh, we hadn't done it before. The fact that it was all online and the fact that I was relying entirely on Temma to do the translation. Right. So I would just speak normally and then he would have to type to translate so he got no time to actually play. Right, right. Uh, and everyone else had to wait this big delay while I while the translation came through. Mm. And then the person who spoke the same language as I was speaking would want to fill that gap because they'd feel awkward because it'd be silent, right? So they'd try and fill the gap, and then I'd respond, which time I had to translate, and then the delay got bigger, so it was a sort of vicious circle. Mm. So a couple of things have happened since then. A, of the four other people playing, essentially three of the people, because it was a couple and then one other person, have had children. So... They're basically out of the picture right, <laughs> for the okay. next couple of years. Right. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, my sister visited us here in California a couple of weeks ago. Nice. Just in time to enjoy the smoky air. Mm. And she came with her boyfriend, who, it transpired, had never played d d and really wanted to give it a go. Wow, great. So the night before they flew back to England we resolved to have just a one-shot single adventure. It would be the two of them and my wife and me. And so again, we're in a bilingual situation where I'm the DM, my wife is mainly speaking Japanese and my sister and her boyfriend are are mainly speaking, well, 100% speaking English. But it wasn't online and I wasn't relying on somebody else to do the translation. Hmm. I was myself stopping the game at appropriate points to translate and go back and forth. Mm. Uh, and it worked out much better. Mm. Uh, we actually had a really good evening. It was a, a fun little adventure about a satyr who had taken over a castle. And they, you know, it all fit into one evening. And we did have to stop sometimes where, like, the story was running ahead of itself and I would have to say, OK, stop for a minute. I'm going to translate this to Japanese. And then i talked talk for a while with my wife in japanese and then that would run ahead and i'd say okay stop i'm going to go into english and you know there was a little bit of that but usually while that was going on while i was doing the translating especially when i was translating to japanese my sister and her boyfriend could talk amongst themselves about what was happening and what they thought they should do next Mm. and and all of that and i could hear them talking so if i thought they were running too far ahead I could sort of stop them and say, okay, I'm going to have another sort of synchronization point here. Mm. Uh, and so so it was quite fun. worked out quite well, uh, very good. And then they flew home and I think they enjoyed
1: the experience. So that was good. To what extent do you think that uh, it was more successful because people were physically in the same room?
0: I think that was a big part of it. I think there were a few things. The fact that people were physically in the same room was a big part of it. The fact that I was stopping to do translations rather than just sort of running at full pace in English and expecting somebody else to translate sort of synchronously with that or asynchronously as programmers would say. Mm. Um, You know, parallel to that. I think both of those things helped a lot. I do think if we were in the situation where we were trying to play online and I followed those same principles, I think it would be doable but it was good to be in the same room together. It was much easier to get into a good flow that way. Hmm. So I was, I was pretty pleased with that. Uh, but I also thought, well, it's, it's just a one-off because they're flying home tomorrow. Then the next weekend, we went down to the market where we always do our shopping. And one of the shops there had decided they've just opened a few tables like in the back of the shop. And they're trying to get together kind of a free space for people to come and play board games or D&D or whatever. So we just happened to pass by this sign saying that they were advertising this, this new space. And and we asked about it. And they said, sure, it's free. You can come. You just book book a time slot and you can come play D&D or whatever you like. And so we thought, oh, that's quite interesting. But we've still got the same problem with, you know, my wife wants to play in Japanese and I want to DM in English. <laughs> hmm. Uh, and so we're what we're thinking of doing now, and we've actually started putting together a sort of just a mini website, which I'll put a link in the show notes if I make it by the time this episode goes out, which I probably won't, just to sort of actually put a listing in the local Japanese language newspaper, like classified section. <laughs> mm. And we're going to actually try and get a group together, a bilingual group, much like the one that I had before online, uh, but to play in person And to set up this same idea with playing in both English and Japanese, and having people who speak both. Wow, that sounds Uh, great! And it's yeah, it's quite exciting. And I hope it'll work out, you know, better because I've done it a couple of times now, and because it'll be in person. So that's you know that'll be an interesting thing. We may or may not do it at this sweet shop, Uh, but uh, either way, yeah, it's. And my wife is really keen to play, so she was. Uh, you know, she's actually been the main one pushing this. Mm. Uh, you know, come on, let's write the listing for the classifieds ad so we can get it together. So, mm. so that's nice. That's great. Um, yeah, that's fantastic.
1: Yeah. In general, how popular is D&D in Japan?
0: D&D is fairly minor, I think, in Japan, especially by comparison with over here. Mm. There are other tabletop roleplay games in Japan. They're actually called Table Talk roleplay games in japan okay and there are some japanese ones i can't remember the name of the main one but there is is one that i think is a little better known dnd mm. but even that is not doesn't have nearly the sort of cultural cachet that that D does over here mm. but the resurgence that dnd has been having recently in the west Largely because of the general resurgence of geek culture, and also because of its appearance on Stranger Things, which mm. sort of r- reminded a lot of people of its existence, and and people who maybe before would have thought it was just a dumb nerdy thing or the work of Satan or whatever they thought mm-hmm. in, in the eighties and the early nineties uh, are now a bit more ready to to accept it and to give it a go, and so I think it's you know it's had a real resurgence over here. And because the world is so much more connected now, I think some of that resurgence is being reflected over there. And certainly, when D&D 5th edition first came out, which was about three or four years ago now, three mm. and a bit years ago, Wizards of the Coast originally put out a press release saying they were not going to do a Japanese translation. They had no plans to make a Japanese translation of this edition, mm. which they have done for previous editions. So that was obviously very disappointing. But they later changed their mind. And now it has been translated. And not only that, but many of the expansion sourcebooks have been translated as well. Hmm. So it's obviously been successful enough over there to be worth translating not just the core rulebooks, but also some of the expansions, like Xanathar's Guide to Everything. Uh, So I think it is doing reasonably well over there but i think japanese Mm. people living here in the bay area are more likely to be familiar with it or have at least heard the name because they're more likely to have been exposed to things like stranger things and to the resurgence and the interest in DD that is happening over here
1: Mm. Mm. yeah that's interesting i wonder whether most japanese people know what a role-playing game is right like a video game yeah that's right yeah but i wonder how many of them you know can actually are aware of how you can trace back the idea of a role-playing game to Dungeons & Dragons.
0: Right. I mean, it's it's funny because so many of the ideas from the original Final Fantasy games and and classic role-play games like that are just directly drawn from traditional role-play games.
1: Mm. Yeah. I've never, when I was there for 16 years, not once did I uh, have any, like I knew nobody who did any role-playing or, you know, no, none of my friends talked about it. And I mm. had some friends who were into some pretty pretty uh, niche things, but, you know, yeah. nobody ever really mentioned it once in the 16 years that I was there.
0: Yeah, I'm, I did meet a couple of people, but people who were, like, extremely into board games and, and right. things like that. Like, you know, a friend of mine who is an acquaintance of yours as well, who I will not name, had He was very into board games. Obviously, he had been working in video games for his whole adult life. Mm. But he had friends who worked in the board games industry. And, and one of his friends actually, I think, was one of the translators of an earlier edition of D&D. Wow. So he had this like personal connection with it. And he was saying he'd always wanted to try playing it, uh, but had never never had the opportunity. And so we actually... He was one of the group that we played... Uh, when i had a group playing D, not bilingually but in japanese right where tema was the dm and i was one of a few players mm. uh, and and he was one of the other players so you know it mm. is a thing that that some people are aware of but
1: it's it's more niche certainly right so i guess it's uh everything at some stage rather has its boom right. in japan so i guess uh Dungeons and Dragons may be having its boom right now if suddenly the fifth edition is needed in Japan urgently, along with its uh, various source books.
0: Yeah. I mean I think it's a you know, it's a relatively minor boom still. I don't think you know, we're still waiting for the manga and the anime and the
1: drama to come out about right. the kid who plays D D. Right. Not on the Yeah, that's right. The <laughs> not on the scale of uh nato or Loose socks or uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of other random booms in Japan. Right, right. Everything's Everything has its uh, boom at some stage or other. I remember one time um, apparently uh, yeah, my wife came back from the supermarket to say, oh, they're all sold out of natto. It's like, why? It's like, I don't know. Apparently something was on TV about how this makes you live longer or, you know, right. <laughs> comes comes back to the preventative medicine that we we're talking about. But, uh, right. you know, natto is, is is being declared a superfood so now all of the supermarkets are sold out of it. It's like, right. <laughs> oh, great.
0: I've, the only thing I find surprising about that story is that I thought all Japanese people all already thought it was a sort of superfood for decades. So I'm surprised yeah.
2: that that
1: this was news. Yeah, well, this is of <laughs> course um, this this might have been before you arrived in Japan, I guess. So yes, that's decades ago. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, LARP. <laughs> Well, it was a good second attempt. <laughs> I actually don't know what LARP means, but I see it on our uh, sort of. Oh, you
0: don't know what it means? I had no, it on there. Just... I, I assumed it would be the sort of thing you'd be super interested in, and I half thought you might have
1: put it in the list. That's why I uh, I can't do a good segue to it because I actually don't know what it means. <laughs> so I just sort of say, "So, Danny, LARP." <laughs> I see, and hope that uh, hope that La- at some point, I'm... role play. You're not. LARPing? Oh, that's what it is. Live yeah. action role play. Isn't it a LARP uh, something in coding that you do when you kind of hack something in? Or is that LERP? No,
0: <laughs> LERP. <laughs> LERP is a mathematical formula where you move steadily from one position to another, linear interpolation. Oh, okay. So oh, right, right. That's different. <laughs> <laughs> LARP
1: LARP 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 is live action role play Live Uh, action role play So this is like uh, the the weekend jousting tournament in the fields Right Where all the old old guys get get their armour on No, not not... old guys
0: necessarily Oh oh, no, so it's not It's a bit of a different thing from like reconstruction You know, uh, you talk about like those reconstruction things Where people sort of relive famous battles Uh, Oh yeah, that and jousting And jousting no, it's a well it's it's similar in some respects but a little bit different from those. Right. Jousting I we've talked about before because they have an actual jousting tournament at Warwick Castle every year. But uh, that's and that is kind of very much put on as a show, but it's also an extremely sort of skillful professional endeavor that you need to be mm. sort of well trained to do. More or less lethal. <laughs> yes. I think they're probably trained to avoid the lethality. It. They, they, you know, they they are performing rather than actually uh, fighting like they would have in the old days. Right. The rec- I can't remember what the actual word is for those reconstruction battle things, but they are making the battle. They are re. They like. Oh, they're also performing. They're performing a battle as it happened in history. So they know what their role was in this particular fight. And they know mm. that like this battalion died at this point on this spot, so they they should die there, right? So they're also not really fighting to win, I don't think. They're also mm. performing, in a sense. I see. Uh, Live-action roleplay is like tabletop roleplay, but you are acting out what happens. So you still have a character, like you do in tabletop roleplay, Hmm. and you have stats you have a certain number of hit points and and stuff like that and you have a class You, you know you might be a wizard and you can cast spells or you might be a fighter or whatever and there's a few different kinds of of games some of them involve going out and spending a weekend camping in a forest and you know literally dressing up as an elf or whatever and doing something like D&D, but in real life and fighting with real latex swords. <laughs> right. Uh, and then others like the the Vampire the Masquerade live action role play game because of the nature of the setting tends to be not away for a weekend in a forest. It tends to be played in cities and for whatever reason, it's much more common to have it be like a thing that you do in the evening after work or or something like that, or maybe at the weekend, but not like camping and spending the whole weekend doing it. It's usually more a few hours rather than like, you know, three days. Right. And the other difference with Vampire the Masquerade uh, live action role play is that the fighting is done using paper, scissors, stone, rather rather than actual physically fighting with pretend swords. Hmm. But anyway, so I'm so from this description, is this totally new to you, or are you familiar with this concept?
1: No, I've I am completely unfamiliar. I, I, yeah, no, tell me everything.
0: Okay, well I put it in because I thought you would be familiar with it, and it is the sort of thing that I feel like LARP has the stigma amongst nerds. That tabletop roleplay tradition he had amongst everyone else, mm. like it's like the next level of nerdiness. Mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. if if mainstream people thought that D and D was nerdy, right. a large subset of D and D people play D and D and think it's cool and everything. But think that LARP is a step too far, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I, I so and I thought you might be in that position, or you may not. But I was ready to stand in LARP's defence. So I'm slightly disappointed that you have never heard of it, and so you probably don't have any opinion on on what it is. <laughs> so I, I guess that uh, costume is. Is uh, obligatory costume is yes a big part. Obviously, you know people go to more or less effort with their costumes. Some people really do go all out and it looks like a sort of cosplay convention. Uh, other people just sort of find a robe and slip that over their jeans or whatever, <laughs> like, like. <laughs> uh, you know. And people have different means and and so forth. But yes, costume is a big part of it, and as is you know sometimes acting out your character i mean it's much more you know if you think in in tabletop role play sometimes you feel a little bit ridiculous sort of trying to speak in the voice of your character you feel even more ridiculous getting in costume and running around a forest pretending to be your character right (laughs) so what do you do about what do you do about combat so i have played three different larp games i played two which were local to the warwickshire area where i grew up mostly hmm. uh which were sort of custom made systems by the organizers of these organizers of these games one was called domain and the other was called legends and then the third one i've played is vampire the masquerade which is an international uh very widely played live action role play game hmm. and in the first two they were very much of the DD fantasy type world they were a whole weekend, so you would drive up to wherever it was. We, we did it in the Forest of Dean once. We did it. It, was most, it was usually either a large forest or a scout camp or somewhere like that that had a lot of mm. space, a lot of interesting areas with like trees and rivers and things like that, but also a kind of area that people could use as home base. That's why scout camps were very popular because they will tend to have like a hut somewhere that people can use with like a kitchen or something, but also large areas where you can set up tents and stuff like that. So right. we would go there on a Friday evening. the story would all start on a, on a Friday and then and then for combat in these role play games, they were these latex weapons. I'll put some links in the in the show notes, but they are weapons constructed to scale to be sort of a realistic scale for what an actual the sort of size of an actual short sword or a broad sword or whatever i think they may even have had some bows and arrows and things like that as well with like arrows that have latex stubs at the end and stuff Mm. and you know you're you're actually physically fighting with them so it's interesting because you get this mix of your statistics, where like each time you hit someone, it does so much damage, and each person has so many hit points, but also your actual physical skill, because some people are better at at parrying and reposting and everything else than others. Right? Sounds uh, sounds very difficult. It's well, so I I understand that it is very nerdy, but I will say. I think, especially Domain and Legends, the the two... I I played them when I was between 14 and and 16, 17. They are some of the most fun I have ever had, and I am so glad I did them. I wouldn't trade them the the time I spent doing that for for anything. Hmm. And the second one, Legends, had a particularly interesting mechanic. It was sort of like a, a development from Domain. A lot of the people who organized Domain went on to organize Legends interestingly they were called dms right but you had like a whole team of dms because they would need to be in like five different places at once as each part of the story was going on because i mean these are big events right there'd be like 40 people or so so it's not like you know like around like D where you've got four or five people around a table mm. there's a large group of people and there'll be many storylines going on at once mm. um, i think um what, what about magic so uh, firstly physical combat real weapons as you hit someone you shout out the number of hit points your weapon does and they keep track of how many hit points they have and so they know when they're dead. wow so it's got, it's
1: like real-time math <laughs> well it, it's subtraction it's not that hard <laughs> right well it's, i don't imagine it'd be too easy when you're kind of running around you know evading somebody or like trying to hit them with a latex sword
2: right
0: well uh it was never a problem. Mm. In fact, in Legends, you had per-body part hit points. So wow. it wasn't just a total number of hit points for your whole body. You had like a couple in each limb and four in your chest or whatever. And so you would have the situation where somebody could cut your arm off, essentially. Where if you lose all the hit points in your arm, you had to put your arm behind your back and pretend you'd lost it. Mm. And carry on fighting one-handed. Uh, so there was some interesting things. And the other thing that Legends had that I thought was was a great development from Domain, is that it had this system of trainers, so of, of people who would train you. So when you got experience points and you wanted to use them to boost a skill, rather than just saying, okay, I've got this many points, I'm going to increase this number on my character sheet, you would find the teacher for that particular skill and before you could add those numbers to your character sheet, they would actually teach you something. Mm. So we had the the swordmaster, for example. He was an actual, I'm not sure about qualified, but he was a very good fencer in real life. Like he went to the same school as me and did fencing and won competitions. <laughs> so he was, mm. you know, he was actually literally a good sword fighter. Mm. And like before you could add those points to your like fighting skill and get more damage or whatever like you had to do a couple of laps around the field and then it'd show you some new moves and then you could go out and you could use those moves Hmm. Uh, and the and there was a there was somebody who was into cryptography and so they could like show you techniques for like solving puzzles and decrypting codes and stuff like that Hmm. so you had this kind of almost kind of educational element to it as well, but in a way that wasn't... I mean, it wasn't too time-consuming. It didn't detract from the, the whole weekend, but it was just a little bit... It meant that points weren't just points. Like, you actually got taught something along with the skill. Mm. With magic, a little less so, because we can't do actual magic, right? So, so you would be taught that the, the, the uh, teacher, I think, knew what spell you would get, maybe. Mm. I'm not quite sure if I'm remembering this right, but they so they would tell you okay n- when you spend these points you will get access to this spell and this is what it does mm. and then again it was a similar sort of thing like i mean it's all on a system based right so if you were a magic user like you would shout out the spell that you were casting and people would either know what it did and then react accordingly or y- you would just say like
1: fireball three damage or whatever mm. Um, but it's it worked like that. Aren't there situations with in combat where people can actually get hurt? Like, what happens in that situation? Does it the whole game stop while while uh, somebody comes into? Yes, I,
0: like, there we. I don't think I saw too many physical injuries, but there are always people there watching. Like the DMs it, are there for pretty much any scene where there's likely to be combat, right? And so they can say, "Stop the game. We need to." sort something out if they need to right when i first started before i was sort of allowed to go out and play i had to learn from them the technique of what is called pulling your blows do you know mm. do you know what that is right the way you yeah. it, i mean it's in theater you use it a lot as well where yeah you make it look like you're hitting someone but you pull back at the last minute to avoid hurting them right that was like mandatory you you had to at least just get shown the basics of how to do that. And obviously, sometimes people would mess it up and hit it a little harder than they intended to. Mm. And that's why the swords are all quite well padded. But mm. yeah, it was, it was not too bad. Although there were some... So here's where we get on to some of the interesting stories of things that have happened. This is very similar to, in D&D, often you'll come away from a session with all these crazy stories about what happened in your imaginary world, right? right. You have very similar things in LARP only they spill into the real world sometimes. Right. And the 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 one that I remember the most was a guy whose character's name, I've actually forgotten his real name, but his character's name was Mitsurugi. Right. And his character, he was one of the oldest players in the game, oldest as in he'd been playing the longest. Uh, so he had a really powerful character. Right. This character had, in an adventure, ages before I joined the game, been bitten or something in a fight with a dragon and he'd ended up growing to be half dragon right and so he had all this makeup on as he was sort of devolving into this sort of dragon uh, self mm. and he had this amazing bone sword which was like one of the as you can imagine when you get all these latex swords and things there was a real market for cool looking swords right and so he had this really fancy latex sword but he was also one of the most skilled actual fighters Mm. there like i think he may have been the one doing the sword training Mm. Uh, so he was physically he was very good as well and the way these things always worked out is that the first night the friday night would go on late into the night and sort of give you an introduction to what the main thrust of the story for this adventure was going to be Mm. and then saturday would would be the full day's adventuring and that story would develop and gain depth and you'd sort of understand it usually Saturday evening some mischief would happen with some of the monsters which I I may go on to explain later setting fire not really to the tents that the players are sleeping in Hmm. which is literally just they run up to their tent in the middle of the night and unzip it and say your tent's on fire you've got to run out (laughs) Which <laughs> is like really annoying if you're just trying to get some sleep right and then <laughs> and oh, then sunday morning everyone would wake up like absolutely shattered because uh, they've had two nights now of late nights running around fighting and so the sunday morning story would generally develop extremely slowly uh, but culminate in what was always called and i'm we're gonna have to bleep this out but it was always called the big f- off fight at the end <laughs> right Where just there would be waves of monsters and all the players, there'd just be a big field and all the players would be attacking these waves of monsters uh, until they got to the final boss at the end. And that was kind of the way these stories tended to be structured. So during the big fight at the end, Mitsurugi, who tended to be the center of the action, have like three or four monsters on him at once. He had been fighting and he was exhausted and sweating and it was a hot day. And so he ran back inside the player hut to to grab some water. And he grabbed this bottle and just like, without thinking, just sort of desperate, unscrewed it and and drank it, only to discover that it wasn't water. It was paraffin. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 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 Which is not good for you. No. (laughs) (laughs) So he sort of spat it out. And he and a couple of the other guys had to go to the hospital with him dressed as a half dragon with like face paint and scales and and stuff all on his face (laughs) and and go to the hospital and say, I drank some paraffin. (laughs) 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 Very embarrassing situation for everyone involved.
1: (laughs) I think that it it sounds exciting in the way that, you know, like paintball would be exciting.
0: Right. I think it probably is a similar similar appeal for this like nerdy paintball.
1: Right. The thing that the thing is that, firstly, you would really, really be in a in a you'd, you'd be stuck if you suddenly decided after ten or fifteen minutes that you didn't enjoy it, because <laughs> you've got you've got all these people around you growling and 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 grunting and uh, thrusting latex swords at you and stuff like that. And you, <laughs> You're not you like suddenly...
0: constantly surrounded by enemies. Like it, it goes on for a whole weekend, so. You have a lot of free time, right I mean it is a bit like a camping trip, and if you didn't enjoy it, you could just leave like there's no problem okay. like there's that that's not really an issue there's also okay. a um a rule where basically if you put your hand on top of your head, that meant you were out of character and everyone had to ignore you oh, okay so there, so you can oh, get right. you
1: can get out of it okay a bit of a bit of a problem if you need to go to the toilet you 've got to have your hand on your head the whole time um, but uh, I think the the requirement for actual physical combat, mm. and that therefore, like your skill with you know a, a latex sword, mm-hmm. that actually decides the fate of your character in a combat situation. In part, yeah. That aspect I think is stretching a little, because I think that the whole charm of role playing mm. is just simply the the infeasibility of it. You know that you could be a gigantic dragon. Completely undefeatable Mm. and enjoy all of you know, enjoy your power fantasies, you know, to to the nth degree. Or you could, you could be like a tiny little gnome that casts magic and uh, the basically role playing in the sense that there is this Mm -hmm. fictional role and you are playing that role. Yeah. The fictional aspect is part of at least from my memory of doing um, role-playing games before, and obviously I haven't had the experience that uh, that you have, but right. the, the several times that I've done it, you know, the whole, uh, the charm of it just really is that complete fictional infeasibility of it. Now, if you then take the situation where, mm. now if I want to be this master, for example, this master samurai warrior, mm-hmm. um, you know, 10th generation trained by his father and his father before him and his father before him with mm. this heirloom sword, you know, now all of a sudden I actually have to physically do that if I mm-hmm. want to be that character. Mm-hmm. So if I'm the kind of person who's just not not naturally inclined for heavy physical activity in a tense situation, mm-hmm. the whole charm of a role-playing game would be that I could do that even though I can't physically do it myself. Right. So how does, how does this work out?
0: I know what you mean. I think it is a different charm. I think
1: it, to, to an extent...
0: You are more limited. Like, there's definitely things that I can do in a tabletop roleplay game that I can't do in real life. In the same way that mm. there's things you can do in a tabletop roleplay game that you can't do in the equivalent video game, right? Like, the, in a video game, you can only do what you've been programmed to be able to do. Right. And in a roleplay game, the, the tabletop roleplay is the utmost sort of free game. Right. You can do anything your imagination can can bring forth, so long as you can roll for it and it meets what your character could do, right? It is true that that, that to some extent you're more limited, but it's so fun. And also, I, I think maybe you're helped by the fact that there aren't that many people there who are like championship class fencers. <laughs> like there was like one or two guys right. at the group that I went to out of like forty. The majority of people. Uh, nerds like me right so so everyone's not that good right (laughs) you you have to sort of like pretend that you're all being much cooler than you are (laughs) right Uh, so that helps i think if you were the one person in a group of master swordsmen playing this game you would feel bad quickly but like I was one of the youngest people there and probably one of the less skilled. Mm. And I never even noticed that as an issue. Mm. I I didn't tend to choose fighter classes. I think the people who are going to choose to play a fighter are more likely to be the ones who want to spend their time physically fighting. Mm. And the people who are less inclined to do that are more likely to choose like a rogue or a wizard class. Mm. But yes, I mean, it is true that you you are limited by what you can actually do
1: Mm. um yeah interesting the whole idea of sort of costume changing your um you know sort of enjoying the idea of changing your identity through changing what's on the surface essentially mm -hmm. but changing your appearance Mm -hmm. uh and then sort of enjoying the the act of sort of well basically role play and pretending to be something else just Letting your appearance influence your behaviour and mm-hmm. the way that you are um, acting, in a sense, mm-hmm. you know that's um, that's the whole charm of you know costume and uh, cosplay or uh, you know anything like this. And right. I think that the idea is that then you you can sort of enjoy that alter ego, taking the taking the um, something that is so infeasible for yourself, mm-hmm. changing your your appearance. So this is the whole charm of costume play. It just seems that the that seems kind of at odds somehow. I'm, obviously, I'm not not disputing the fact that it would be fun. Obviously, for the people who would enjoy it, it sounds hugely fun, and I guess like paintball has um, that kind of tense, right. uh, tense, nervous excitement about it. I'm, I guess this would as well. I think
0: you're you're. <laughs> I think you're doing a thing which you do quite often, which <laughs> which is honing in on one problem with it one thing that it's lacking but the thing that mm. the other thing isn't lacking mm. but that's like that that's not the in- entire essence of what can be fun about role play and i think okay. it has it has many things that traditional tabletop role play doesn't have right it has the fact that you're spending the weekend out in the forest which is a nice thing to do even if you're not role playing mm. and it has this this sense of community with like 30 or 40 other people who are all Enjoying being in this world with you. Hmm. So I think it, I, I don't disagree with you that there is there are things that you can do in tabletop roleplay that you can't do in in this style of LARP. Hmm. Um, but I think it just has has so many other things that are appealing about it that they both are appealing for different reasons in their own right. Hmm. And then of course with with like Vampire the Masquerade, uh, which is the other style of LARP that uses papers as a stone for combat in that case you can kind of do these things that would be impossible mm. but you 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 go back to it's slightly more abstracted it's slightly closer to the tabletop thing so mm. when i first tried the vampire the masquerade larp i thought it was stupid i was like i'm having fun acting out this character and role playing and having this whole experience with everyone here and then suddenly we're going to stop and play Paper, a stone, for God's sake. <laughs> it's like the dumbest game, like just right. to decide who won. But that that's the way that game works. And then while you're doing that, you're supposed to be imagining in your head that you're actually doing all the cool things, which, you know, I don't know why I thought it was stupid, because that's what I did every time I played actual Vampire the Masquerade with a dice. So, right. you know, so... And, and Vampire the Masquerade is, is interesting because it's a consistent world internationally Hmm. so you can take your character and you can travel to birmingham or to new york or to london or to one of these centers where there's quite a big group of people who play the vampire masquerade lab Hmm. and experience that part of the world and it's considered to be part of the same, you know, the real world, right? Vampire and the Masquerade is set on Earth in the real world. Mm. Um, and it's a, a much more political game. Are you familiar with the tabletop role-play game? No, no, I'm not. So it's very, it's very political, uh, the original game as well. It has this whole concept of cities have a vampire prince who is kind of in charge of all the vampires of that city. And there are all these different factions who are kind of vying for control. Uh, and so that's part of the reason there's less of a focus on combat in in the Vampire the Masquerade LARP because it's much more political and it's more about going and meeting these people and, you know, trying to influence them. Mm. And so that can be quite interesting, you know, in a very different way as well. Mm. And maybe that's part of the reason that that tends to be shorter, like, evening sessions because it's a bit more intense.
2: Mm.
1: Wow. The world of LARP.
0: Yeah. Now you know. I'm quite surprised that you've never encountered this before, especially with the amount that friend of the show and colleague Chris has made fun of me for doing it over the years. (laughs) I'm surprised you've never heard him
1: (laughs) bring it up. Uh, No. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think... It doesn't seem that appealing to me. I think, like uh, I said, I wasn't trying to... Point out a failing of the like the fundamental aspects of LARP and why you know it's it shouldn't be successful because it has this failing mm. the idea of trying to be a, a role that actually you physically need to perform. But yeah, I don't know. I think that uh, for me personally, the idea of role playing really is imagination, mm. and when you when you pull that needle away from imagination and more into actual physical reality. In that you've got costume and you've got setting and you've got mm. face paint and you've got weapons and then you've got physical combat that you actually do yourself. Right. Um, for me personally, you know that uh, that takes one of the key aspects of role playing, which is using your imagination, and and sort of pulls the needle a bit too far over to the mm. to to realism. However, I, I, of course, I can see how, like paintball, like I said, it would be uh, would definitely be a lot of nervous energy and a whole lot of fun. Right. Yeah.
0: And I mean. Yeah, I'm not sure I would do it now, just because it's not because of the imagination thing. I think there is still a lot of imagination involved, but just because it's it's a lot of effort to go to a forest for a whole weekend and find a costume nice. and very tiring. Uh, but when I was in my teens, uh, when I was 14, you weren't actually allowed to be a player mm. at 14. Really, you you could only be a monster and. But it was quite a good introduction to the, to the whole thing. So the, the other thing is, obviously, there's a lot of resources involved. We're hiring out this whole scout camp. And there's the DMs have to put a lot of effort into creating these adventures and all that. So it was a paid event, right? You would pay like £25 or something to go for the weekend. Mm. But monsters could get in free because the DMs mm. really need the, the monsters, to be the enemies of the players, right? The players are paying money to come and enjoy their experience right. and develop their characters and all that. And the monsters don't really get an opportunity to do that because they're kind of cannon fodder. Like, generally, right. the monsters die a lot mm. and the players are generally trying to live through many, many weekends, right? Mm. So the monsters could get in free, which meant that I could, I could go free, and then the, the DMs would sort of have a story in mind and they would say, okay we're going to set up this raid. We know these players are traveling over to this part of the camp, so we're going to ambush them on the way. So I want you and three other uh, players, you're going to be goblins now, and you've got, you know, these points and whatever. Uh, and here are some weapons. We didn't have to supply our own weapons either. And you can go out and and attack them. And obviously like like would get killed. <laughs> like there was no chance we were going to win right uh but you know it was part of the drama of it and the excitement um and then we'd go back to the the monster hut there was like separate camps for the players and the monsters mm. and so we'd go back to the monster hut and be assigned our next job and that was a really fun sort of thing to do as well and i think a really great thing for a 14 year old kid to do like i think it was a great uh experience i think it was mm. i did i was in scouts as well mm. and i went to scout camp where you just go with other scouts and you learn to build fires and, and survive in the wilderness and whatever and so <laughs> whatever else you need to, to get your badges on your shirt right but uh you know and that was fine as well but It's a similar sort of thing, but just with more monsters. (laughs) And, uh, and I thought it was great. And I, I think it's a a great thing for, for sort of people growing up to do and, and just a great, great way to spend your time. So,
1: LARP for the win. Let's, let's have a toast of paraffin to that, shall we? A toast, toast of paraffin.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The other story, which may or may not make the episode, but, uh. One of the people that I used to go to all these LARPs with was Temma. Mm. I went with a few friends, but Temma, I think Temma came every time that I went. Uh, so we played a lot of these together. And one of the most memorable moments uh, from, from when we were playing is I don't know if you know this about Temma, but he's, he's very skilled in a lot of things, but perhaps his greatest skill mm. is sleeping. I see. <laughs> he can sleep. Anywhere, right? Under any circumstances, right? He had many years honing his skill, sleeping on his long bus rides to my school, which is like an hour and a half from where he lived. Oh, wow. And then his long train rides to London, which is an hour in the other direction. Right. Uh, when he where he went to Japanese school at the weekend, and so he's like he spent half his life sleeping on public transport. So he's very, very, very good at sleeping. Right. And once in the middle of the night, we were we were in the player hut. This was by the time we were old enough to be players. And there was a monster raid, like at one in the morning or something. Right. And most of us were awake, just like hanging out, you know, talking about the day's events. But Temma had fallen asleep in, in a chair. Right. And suddenly we're attacked by like 10 monsters. And there were, there were like quite a few of us in the room as well. And it's not that big a room. So there's this really close quarters, massive fight everyone's sort of shouting and and fighting and hit like got monsters on either side of them. And uh Temma's sleeping this whole time. And and at one point the the hut had this like strip lighting
2: Hmm.
0: and one of the, the, I don't know, somebody, one of the players or the monsters hit this strip lighting with his sword Hmm. and it was directly over Temma's head and it fell out of its slot and it was going to fall right on him but then one of the other players, while fighting off a monster, lifted up his left hand and caught the strip lighting and put it back wow. and continued the fight. <laughs> and throughout wow. this entire thing, Temma was asleep and didn't find out about it until the next morning when like all the players who had witnessed this amazing feat <laughs> were telling him about it. Wow. So, yes. amazing. I mean, that story would have gone very differently. Obviously, he had, uh, I can't remember the name of the guy, but this very skilled... He was another one of the very skilled fighters. Not had the wherewithal to catch this strip light in action and prevent it from falling and smashing on Temer's head. Right.
1: (laughs) Anyway, good times. Good times indeed. (laughs) Happy LARPing. Yes. LARP.